Welcome to Rocksback Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm on a computer screen with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. And also on the screen is this episode's very special guest, Candia Crazy Horse. Welcome, Candia. Howdy. (laughs) (laughs) Candia joins us today to talk about her career as a writer and singer and teacher. And we'll also be talking to her about all kinds of fascinating things like Arthur Lee and the Allman Brothers and a 1969 audio interview with the great late little Richard. So, but Candia, how did music first get its grip on you as a little girl? Well, it was everywhere. You went out on the street in my neighborhood, there'd be Santana blasting from buildings because it was a predominantly Latino neighborhood. Where was this? In Washington, D.C. Right. I lived in the barrio. Adams Morgan was the barrio then. (laughs) And there were guys drumming in the parks. There was a drum circle at Malcolm X Park that lasted for many years. And then inside the house, I just somehow adopted the stereo. (laughs) The stereo was the thing. I'm really bad at technology, but... The stereo was the thing I figured out how to use from a very early age. And I just would go through my parents' record collection and discover things. What kind of stuff did they listen to? My mother was a jazz fanatic. So a lot of jazz, a lot of African music from her side. My father is into country and some gospel Because he comes from, well, my grandfather, his father was a preacher. So there was some element of of church music. Mm -hmm. They listened to soul music, of course. My father, particularly being from the Deep South, loved all that stacks, volt stuff. So it was, that was just everywhere. And Motown, my mother liked Motown. I think at that time, the Jackson 5 were coming out. So we had like a kiddie entree to Motown through them. Fantastic. I mean, so I, I find your, your dad's interest in country music really interesting because it, it obviously that sort of plays into what your some a lot of your tastes later on in life. Yes. But also it's an area that black people listening to country music is an area which is much neglected by sort of the broader audience that this, this big audience for country music existed in the black community. I think that's really interesting. Yes, my grandmother, his mother, and her sisters would cook and sing Hank Williams songs. (laughs) Fantastic. They they cooked all day, all these different meals. And we would go and live with my grandparents in Georgia every year for four months. So got a lot of influence through that. That's kind of what explains me. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, my my father and I would listen to country and watch like the country Grammys on TV. That was always an exciting thing to wait to see the Oak Ridge Boys and Barbara Mandrell and her sisters and all of that. Alabama. This is the 80s, isn't it? This is like peak 80s country act. That was, yeah, from the 80s and then and before then. I loved Tom T. Hall. Yes. It's just normal to me that country is cool and that there's a, a black audience for it. 
Yeah. It's still being debated that there isn't a black audience for it in America, mm-hmm. but there's always been a huge audience to my mind that just isn't recognized, mostly based in the South. Well, Barney, you, I mean, your book, say at one time for the brokenhearted, very much investigated that sort of where soul music and country music sort of crossed over, merged together in various ways. Yeah, um, that came out in the 80s. I remember when I was doing interviews for that, I sort of remember groups like Alabama and, and Barbara Mandrell and country music wasn't great in, in that decade. But yeah, I was, I was sort of looking at that, at that relationship as, as you know, Candia, and probably a little later, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, Muscle Shoals. And of course the, the guy who brings all this together is probably Dwayne Orman, isn't it? Dwayne Orman playing with Wilson Pickett is that's the kind of the great moment of kind of Muscle Shoals rock and soul. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let her in your heart, then you can start to make it better. But we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about the Orman Brothers. And, and what I want, want to ask is, is, I think I remember an interview where you said that you, quite early on, even as, a, as quite a young girl, you were fascinated by names like Jerry Wexler <laughs> and your first ambition really was to become a, a record producer I think. Yes that's true. I for some reason very early on I knew about Papa Dip as we called Jerry. May he rest in peace and Ahmet Ertigan and all these people that were behind Atlantic Records and some other people like that in that category. I just assumed I would grow up and do what they did because they were responsible <laughs> for these classics that I loved so much. I didn't I didn't understand that the record business was so segregated that you probably wouldn't have the chance to be mentored by the right people to get ahead to get into the slots where you could be responsible for these records that, you know, somebody like a Tom Wilson is very rare. Yes. So, yeah. (laughs) You spoke to one of the pieces that we're featuring by on the homepage is a lovely piece you wrote on Donny Hathaway, who we all worship. And I was reminded on rereading it that you spoke to Wax on the phone in Florida, where I visited him, so I knew exactly where he was speaking to you from. So it's great that you spoke with him. I mean, he he like made so much incredible soul music possible, and he said some lovely things to you about Donny. Let's briefly talk about Donny Hathaway. When did you discover him, or did did your parents have any Donny Hathaway records? Yeah, we had Donny Hathaway records and Donny and Roberta as well. Yeah. My parents went to Howard University. That's where they met. In D.C. That's where, yeah. yeah, and that's where he studied music. So he was seen as like a local in that sense. And so we always had his records playing for very early on. Good. 
Yeah, I, 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 that live album is just sensational. It's just one of the great records. Yes. I mean, I had a funny... I mean, I remember that hit with Roberta, Where Is The Love? And for a long time, that was how I thought of Donny Hathaway. I came rather late to his greatness, to be honest, and I don't really know why. Once I discovered those records... I mean, actually, I think, Mark, you had played a part in that. I don't that live album. I think you burned me a CD of that. And uh-huh. um, that's comparatively late. And I just, I just worship the guy now. And I think you say in your piece, let me quote from it. You say uh, something like the great mystery is why Donnie, you know, isn't, it's a wonderful piece called Half-Life in the Bush of Ghosts, Come Back Donnie from 1999. It's for creative loafing. Uh, where you worked, I think, for a bit. You just essentially said, why Why is he not celebrated? Why is he not up there with Marvin Gaye and co? And his music is so moving, isn't it? It's just so moving. That version, the live version of a song for you, the Leon Russell song, I, I just, you know, my wife and I listened to it with our spines tingling, tears rolling down our faces. I can't, yeah. I can't listen to it too often. Yeah, it's it's hard to listen to him. Because I get very emotional. Yeah, I have to. I have to space it out when I can listen to him, and I can't get in despair. So it's tough. I have to feel a certain way to be able to listen to him and get the joy out of his songs. Unsung, the TV One show program that documents. Black music hadn't had its episode yet when I wrote that. So I was feeling like he was not as well known as Al Green and the other soul men of the 70s. But now I think the cult of him has grown much more. We we went in the summer, was it, I guess this must have been last summer because we couldn't have gone out this year. At Lincoln Center, they ha- his daughter Layla did a special where she sang his music, and the crowds like were queued up so far in advance. It was just like an amazing thing to see. Well, and people came hear. from out of town. David Ryan Harris is a friend of mine, great musician yes. that I I mention in the piece. Yes. He came from Atlanta, and Wow. People were just people were just losing the, their minds. It was very moving. That's wonderful to hear. Lala Hathaway is an amazing musician as well. Yes. She's done some absolutely incredible records. I didn't know that she'd done a tribute gig in that way, but I think it's lovely. Funnily enough, Jealous Guy right. is my number one track of this year, according to Spotify. Oh, it's, my God. It's, it's, it's the one it's track brilliant. I've listened to it's more than anything else. It's one of the yeah. whites. The drummer is one of the Earth, Wind & Fire family whites. I forget which one. And he holds down that oh, really yeah. slow groove, just immaculately. And it pisses all over John Lennon's original. A very great line. Candia, when did you first start to think about writing about music? I never really thought about it. (laughs) (laughs) You just did it. Yeah, I just did it. (laughs) Basically, I used to read 
rock criticism when I was like in junior high, earlier than that, but really I I remember junior high, like going to buy books about music, but I never, I never decided to do it. Like you said earlier, I wanted to be Jerry Wexler. (laughs) So I didn't, I never thought about, and I know he wrote, but that wasn't the part of his career that I focused on or that was like, it was more opaque to me. So what happened was I used to go on the Black Crow's original website for the message board and make commentary on there. And while I was doing that, people became fans of mine and said that I should be writing. How interesting, because that's like an early example of what we now call influencers. Is the, 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 oh, okay. Yeah, you know, by, 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 <laughs> I guess. By going onto a kind of message board, by going online and writing and people then starting to follow you is very much what happens these days. It's, it's, you're ahead of the game. Well, that's basically what happened. I did that and then I was writing for Songwriters Monthly and it just kind of started becoming a thing that I did. I don't really remember now, but that's that's kind of what happened. And I went on with it. I auditioned or whatever you want to call it to write for the Village Voice by writing a piece about Graham Parsons. Uh-huh. And they accepted it. Who was your contact there? Who who was Eric Weisbard? Eric Weisbard, okay. And working there kind of got me started. And I was writing about the same stuff that you know me for, because the, the big piece that put me on the map there was about Southern Rock. So the earliest pieces we have by you on Rock's Back Pages are indeed about the Black Crows and Drive-By Truckers and various other acts from that period. So did you feel, in a sense, you were carving out a niche for yourself and what did people think about you writing about, eventually writing about Southern rock? I mean, you've talked, there's, there's a really good video interview online from Indiana University where you're asked about this quite unique position that you made for yourself. What's your memory of that time? I don't know that I knew I was carving out a niche I just went where I felt moved to go mm. and where that was tended to be around the south the bands from the southeast it just did they were doing what I thought was the best music at the time and I wasn't interested in hip hop unless it was the dirty south stuff like Goody Mob and Outkast they had similarities to the bands that were rocking out so they fell into the category. But I wasn't interested in the pop music of the time. People thought it was strange. I know, like, Bob Criscow wondered about me. <laughs> <laughs> why I wanted to do, you know, why? Because these were bands that, in the history of rock criticism, there had been, I think, a bias towards the Almond Brothers. And it seemed remarkable that it should be me, a young black and indigenous female, 
who wanted to cover those bands. And Greg Tate named me the redneck negress. That was, <laughs> he, he was fascinated by me wanting to go down to Macon in these places. Yes. Fantastic. One thing, Candy, you and I have in common is our passion for Mad Dogs and Englishmen and Leon Russell in particular. When did you start listening to this sort of stuff? You must have been sort of like crate digging and so on and so forth, finding... Yeah, I think that was probably in high school. Right. I had read about something to do with Mad Dogs and Englishmen somewhere in high school, like when I was 14, 15. I think is when I really discovered that stuff. And I somehow got a copy of Mad Dogs and Englishmen. When I first got it, I just cried (laughs) and stayed home in bed for like a week watching it because I couldn't believe that music could be so amazing. That choir and that band and the whole spirit of family behind it. One of our writers, Mike John, who wrote for the New York Times around the time, he still reckons that that Mad Dogs show at Fillmore East was the greatest rock and roll show he ever saw. He's very fortunate. I wish I'd been alive and old enough to attend. <laughs> yeah. I saw Leon Russell at the Albert Hall in 71. Very, basically that band. Just a great, great show. It was fantastic. Was Claudia near there? Oh, yes. Wearing nothing <laughs> nothing much more than a black string wife beater and very little else. <laughs> so that's why you remember it. <laughs> oh, very. That's one of the reasons why I remember it. I, you know, I, it was my 15th birthday. I was very, very impressed. <laughs> In this wonderful piece that you wrote exclusively for us in 2002, Song of the South, about the Ormonds, you have this great sentence, inchoate reminiscences of long-haired and wild-eyed young hillbillies racing their pickup trucks along Chocolate City's M Street as they drank beer and blasted Ramblin' Man still linger indelibly upon this mind. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Wonderful. You know, I suppose... One question that I would like to ask you is after the year we've just had and all the issues about the Confederate flag and Confederate statues, has your relationship with groups like the Orn Brothers and, of course, Leonard Skinner and songs like Sweet Home Alabama, has that changed at all in the last year? No, it hasn't. I can't say that it has I mean, I'm glad people are having the catharsis of tearing down statues, if that's really what they feel they need to do. But as far as I'm concerned, that music is still untouchable. It's still as magical as it always was. I mean, I'm not listening to a bunch of Southern bands right now. It's kind of like once Bushy died and then Greg Allman died, that was kind of like the end of the era for me. Okay. So I haven't been paying attention to who's coming out of the region. So I don't know what they're saying. I don't know how they're addressing this climate. But that music has a power that is 
everlasting and it can't be reduced to just the chaos of this moment. Sure. If anything, that music would still has the ability to resolve a lot of these issues. Yeah, you know Mark Kemp, don't you? He's he's he's, he's yes, his guy, you know. Of course. And Dixie Lullaby, his book, which is very interesting. It's you know his love of southern rock, but is also his ambivalence about particularly aspects of Leonard Skinner's sort of approach to certain things. But it's 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 a very interesting subject. Mm. Why don't we come at this from a slightly different angle and talk about another book, which is the book you put together in 2004, Candia, called Rip It Up, The Black Experience in Rock and Roll. And this really was dedicated, you know, not to the likes of the Ormond Brothers, but it was looking at everyone from Little Richard to Arthur Lee. And the last of the three pieces we've got by you is this wonderful piece you wrote about Arthur after seeing Arthur Lee and Love play at the House of Blues in 2003, which was for Pop Matters. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about the whole phenomenon, in a sense, of black artists in the 60s and 70s, particularly, sort of turning this thing on itself and, in a sense, reappropriating the music that they influenced in the first place. The most obvious, the starkest example being, of course, Hendrix. But you think about someone like Arthur Lee, who was doing like a kind of punkish folk rock almost even before Hendrix's first album. What is your, why is Arthur Lee so great? Explain Arthur Lee to anyone who doesn't understand (laughs) the mystery of Arthur Lee. I don't know how to (laughs) explain that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Arthur Lee... It's just, he's a maverick. He is so unique in what he did, blending the folk stuff with the punk edge. And you're talking about the Mad Dogs and Englishmen. For me, the best show I ever saw was Arthur Lee with the strings at Town Hall. In New York. Yeah. Yeah. Doing Forever Changes. Doing the Yes, doing doing Forever Changes. And his leg was busted, but he had a cane and he was just singing out and holding on to the thing at the edge of the stage. And he was all resplendent and white and fringe and cowboy hat. And he's just that, a singing cowboy for our time. <laughs> There's a love track called Singing Cowboy, isn't there, of course, which I think you yes. mentioned in in the piece. I mean, this is ostensibly a live review, but it's a, it's more like a long, passionate love letter to Arthur, who was a complex character. Yes, he was complex, but I had been led to believe he was surly and not very approachable. But I, I met him after the show at Warsaw that they did, and he was perfectly nice to me, and we talked for quite a while. Great. Can you tell us how the book Rip It Up came together? And because my copy is in the Roxback Pages office, which I've barely been into in lockdown, I wasn't able to just kind of check it. Can you remind us of just a handful of the pieces that were in that anthology? 
I can remind you of one of them because I wrote it and it was the piece on Arthur <laughs> Lee. But I, I, I was, <laughs> I'm fairly sure anyway that my piece on Arthur Lee was in it. But um, can you tell us about some of the other pieces in there, including your, your own piece on, I think, Vanessa Fields? Yes, I interviewed Vanessa Fields. I had wanted to feature Claudia Lanier and a bunch of those women She's the one that I got in touch with, was able to get in touch with at the time. Paul Gilroy did Jimi Hendrix. We had Funkadelic by Mike Ladd. Amy Linden did Michelle and Davio Cello. Yes. Now I can't remember. Yeah. There, there must have been a long time since I was. Yeah, it's a long Reddit. time ago. It, there must have been yeah. a little Richard piece in there. Did Greg Tate? Yeah, there Greg is Tate one. wrote the intro, didn't he? Yes, Greg Tate wrote the introduction, and we have interviews with Lenny Kravitz and Slash. Yes. Vivian Goldman did a piece about Betty Davis. Oh, fantastic. Amazing. I think I need to get hold of this book, because I've I've never come across it, and I'd love to read it. You can borrow it from the Rocks Back Pages library. Very good. (laughs) Very good. I think you can still get it from Amazon if you want to have your own, very own Excellent. Copy. I will endeavour to find one. And that will put half a cent into Candy's bank account. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really, as a project and as a concept, it's a really interesting one in that, I mean, the last name that was mentioned, Betty Davis, for example, is, is always portrayed in this exoticizing way where it's like well she was kind of a sex fiend blah 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 while totally ignoring the stridency of the music there's just this amazing full-on presence that she had and you know either she's conceptualized as miles davis's erstwhile partner or this outsider figure and i think both of that just kind of ignores what was really great about her and i think that is mirrored across a lot of black artists who were in the rock or rock-adjacent genres and who couldn't catch a break in terms of getting pigeonholed. Yes, they had to be a sex pot, <laughs> this image. Like Tina Turner, of, for example. Yes, instead of being an intellectual and sure. a creator the way Betty Davis was. Yeah. Did you see the documentary, the Betty Davis documentary, Candia? There's a fantastic documentary made about a year or so ago about yeah. her. Yes. You know, I mean, she, she's this, uh, curious because she's in it, but she's not. She's this sort of curious presence, sort of just off camera, sort of a lot of the time. But she, she's just such an interesting woman. They say I'm different because I'm a piece of sugar cake. Sweet to the core, that's right. I got a real bone. My great grandma didn't like a foxtrot. Now, instead, she spit it, snuffing boogers. Hey, I'm on dragon. In a sense, the theme of the main feature on the homepage, Candy, this week is precisely about what Jasper put his finger on, this sort of problematic relationship that black music has had with this sort of rock establishment in terms of radio and so forth. And we've got four pieces that look at that, or three particular sort of look at it and address the acts like Funkadelic and indeed Prince. There's a, a piece from 1981 that Jeffrey Himes wrote and one of the things that really jumped out of these pieces for me was that because Hendrix has this almost sacred and very like privileged position as as the sort of king of kind of black rock what that's meant is that a lot of other acts sort of have not been allowed in it's like he's he's the one guy who's allowed into the sort of rock temple and then 
you know, you have George yeah. Clinton kind of asking the question in that track on One Nation Under a Groove, who says a funk band can't play rock? And your book, in a sense, really addresses that. So who says a funk band can't play rock, Candia? <laughs> I don't understand why it's been that way. I just know that it is. But certainly, Funkadelic should be as revered as the Rolling Stones are. As a rock band. They've been around. Yes. They should be able to go out and do these massive tours every year because... They had the wealth of knowledge and sound behind them. George Clinton is a master of misrule. <laughs> and that is an essential element of rock and roll. You know, there have been the occasional stray example. Living Colour briefly had sort of, you know, did pretty well, sold quite a lot of records and so on and so forth. But well, the whole Black, Black yes, Rock Coalition. Yes, and that was thing. Yeah. yeah, the Black Rock Coalition had a lot to do with that. Yeah. And, of course, Greg Tate was one of the original founders of that, wasn't he? Yes, Greg, Greg and Tate. Vernon and Connor Mason. There's your own adventures in music, of course, which we mustn't leave out of this, Candia. In your album, which I managed to uh, pull out of my CD drawer, Stampede, which came Terrific. out in 2013, which is which we were delighted to find was a really, really good record. Yeah, we really liked it. it's not it. often that <laughs> writers, when, when, they, when they start making music, it doesn't often end well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this should have sold many. Thank you. We love this record. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about how Stamp, you know, briefly how Stampede came about. It's basically like a country rock record, isn't it? Yes, it is. My mother died, and I wanted to pay homage to her, yeah. and so I started writing songs. I said instead of writing just a piece about her. I started writing songs, and as you know, because I'm so influenced by you, Barn, you know that I love the Laurel Canyon thing. And so I, so I sat down to write songs. I was surprised, but that's what that's what came out. Yes, was songs in that vein, and I just decided, well, why not go for it, <laughs> despite all the evidence to the contrary. It came together through this really strange set of circumstances, but I basically had Shakira's band wow. playing on it, and her musical director was my producer. So I was working with a group of Cubans who did not understand <laughs> country and did not know where Laurel Canyon was. <laughs> so I had to introduce them to all of that. And somehow you can see that where they got fascinated with it when we did J.D. Souther. Oh, New Kid in Town. Yeah, the included, that wasn't my choice. That's that was a beautiful version of it, choice. though. I love it. And he, he had himself a high old time playing the piano on that. <laughs> so they got, they finally sort of got where I was coming from by the end of it. Well, they're very convincing. It's a very convincing job. Yeah, yeah. 
And there's also a really like funky track that I particularly love called Congo Square. I think we're going to put on a playlist to coincide with this episode. So it's just, it's got a lot of different elements in it, most of which I absolutely love. I think it, stand, it stood up really well as an album. And of course, should have sold gazillions. Yeah, the other, the other cover is So Many Enemies is by Neil Casal, sadly. That's departed right. now. Yes. He was my favorite artist of my generation. Well, yeah, I guess he's the same generation when it comes down to it. I mean, Gene Clark above all, but for my cohort, he was really one of the greatest writers and pickers. And now that he's gone, I'm glad that I got a chance to do that to pay him some tribute. Yes, yes. Yeah, very sad story, because he took his own life, didn't he? Yes. So really, really heartbreaking. Anyway, it is a great album. If anyone's listening, Stampede, I really recommend it. Yeah, I've been listening to it the last couple of days, having not ever heard it before, and it is a really amazing melting pot of all kinds of different sounds and styles. I mean, soul yodel, you know, and that cover of New Kid on the Block. It's Yeah, it's great. I, I loved it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you very much. back to the the very sort of start of black rock and roll if we can if we can call it that with this week's audio interview mark it is it's the like the granddaddy of the of the whole thing isn't it really yeah it's, it's little richard joel sullivan interviewed him eventually for a piece which was published the following year in rolling stone it's november 69 little richard is playing the three nights at the whiskey i think in los angeles the sound quality is shall we say, variable. It's an, it's an old tape, but we managed to kind of salvage a kind of good chunk of it. I think recorded at the at, at Richard's suite at the Ambassador Hotel. That sounds right. The first bit of it sounds like it's recorded backstage, and then the second okay. side is is at his hotel. Right. Most of what you listen, you hear is, is, is from that. You know, he talks about songs like Tutti Frutti and Good Golly Miss Molly. He talks about coming up in Macon, Georgia. He talks about Miss Ann Johnson's club, the TikTok. But Miss Ann Johnson basically sort of adopted Richard when he was thrown out by his father. He talks about touring the South in the 50s, how kind of tough that could be. And well, let's listen to a clip. He talks about his act.
<laughs> I love the way he ends up all down the line. Yeah. Of course, being one of the Stones' great songs. And one of the pleasures of this audio is that his tendency to go into rhyme at the drop of a hat. You know, he's not going to just talk. He's going to like. It's almost like he turns the interview into a sort of song process. It's, it's you know, he's so engaging. He's got this marvelous voice. He talks about things like doing the movie The Girl Can't Help It, finding God in 1957, befriending the Beatles. He talks about the Beatles version of his Long Tall Sally, you know. Uh, and he actually, uh, sit, you hear him singing like Get Back in a kind of Little Richard <laughs> style, don't that's you? That's right. Which is, yeah. So you actually get music in this interview. I mean, he, he claims to virtually have invented the Beatles. I mean, he sort of, he talks about, you know, he took them to Germany, he did this, he did that, you know. He's got a very, very good line in Benign Lies, you know. Sort <laughs> of. <laughs> well, he did teach Paul McCartney to go, there's no doubt about that. That's absolutely right. And he did. He talks about I saw her standing there, doesn't he? And he actually did a version of that, I think, on this this album he yeah. did at Muscle Shoals. It is wonderful no, to listen to. It's, great. it's a great interview. He says himself that he no longer has a black audience. We'll listen to this clip. He talks about the way in which the black music fan evolves according to different dances and so on and so forth, and how the music moves away from him and he's still safe with his white audience. Let's have a listen to Jasper. Black people, they dug me when I first came out in 56. I was a very big rage to them. Uh, but black people, they, they, they create dances and rhythms uh, and so they keep, they constantly create a new dance. And when they create a new dance, there has to be a new beat. Uh, that's what James Brown does. He changed beats to the new dances. And, and so the kids, like, you have to keep a current thing on with black kids do you lose them. And white kids, once you're a star with white kids, you're always a star. If they want to accept you as a star, you don't have to ever make another record, but you're always a star. I think that's very interesting observation. I think it's a very good observation. I think that he understands how black music progresses. He understands that he's no longer part of that progression, but the white fans are there for him, which is pretty right. Yeah, what do you what do you feel about... I mean, it's a, almost a bit of a trope in popular culture, isn't it, that the white fans of the great black artists somehow stay more loyal to them over the years, whereas the original black audience... For those artists moves on very quickly which is that is that a fair kind of cliche candia do you think i don't know because I, I never move on <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you stay loyal i know exactly yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean yes there does seem to be this sense of discarding genres really quickly and going on but i i don't i don't know i don't know why that's the case he talks we're going to push play a clip at the end of the podcast he talks about how someone like him with his track record gets dropped by the labels while he basically implies that white hats are given much longer time to develop and so on and so forth by by the music industry by record companies specifically so 
you know, that's probably part of that same sort of process in in his eyes. Um, lastly, I mean, he he also talks, and again, at this, this time of Black Lives Matter, he talks very interestingly about the sort of police harassment that he experienced as an artist, especially in the South, for you know so much of his of his life, and. Um, you know, he, he he's very interesting. It's a good, it's a good interview. He's, uh, he, like I said, he's he's such an engaging man. It's interesting listening to him like ten plus years on from, you know, his kind of peak moment, yeah. and he's just played the whiskey as you mentioned. So where is you know where is Little Richard in 1969? You know, we're already in the kind of oldies but yes. goldies era. You Ralph Nader, the, the Madison Square Garden revival shows. Exactly, you know, he talks this- about that. That very thing himself. That, that, that I mean, you know, he doesn't like to regard himself as being revived, but he's aware that the revival circuit exists without a doubt. Interestingly, talking about Muscle Shoals is when I was working there in '87. Travis Wamack, the guitar player who did uh, what's the Barney? What was the name of his hit? Was it Itching or Scratching or something? Scratchy, like scratchy, scratchy. Uh, yeah. And that was on Capricorn, wasn't it? Yeah, he was on. He had a, he had an album on Capricorn. That, that, that's right. His son basically looked after us, Monkey Wamak, so-called, because when he was a kid, he used to climb out of his cot all the time. He's actually Travis Jr. And they were, at that time, in Little Richard's band. They were drummer and guitar player in Little Richard's band. And they loved him. Monkey just talked about him, said, oh, Richard's, Richard's a fan, man. He's a, you know, he was great. He's kind of, you know, this young white kid of Alabama, just, yeah. just, just really. Well, I mean, at the point in time when this interview was done, like we were, we were sort of, less than a year away from this album he did in Muscle Shoals. And the best track on it is a track that Travis Wamak co-wrote called Greenwood, Mississippi. Oh, really? I didn't know that. With Travis's inimitable guitar player. And it's really funky. And Richard almost kind of managed to reinvent himself. Uh, I mean, I think he was always a soul singer as well as a rock and roll singer. And at this and in Muscle Shoals, he almost became like a kind of southern rock and soul singer again. It's a pretty decent. It's certainly the best record he made in in that period. Do you know that album, The Real Thing, Candy? No, I don't. It's worth hearing. It's well, it's on Spotify, like, like everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> like everything. It's with Mississippi is 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 fabulous. I'm just I, I I'm I hate to say this I'm totally unaware of this record. It was I his must, first album on Reprise. He was signed to Reprise, mm-hmm. and that was that was the first record. Anyway, of course we're talking about Richard because we lost him this year. We do have a, another. We have two other audio interviews with with the Richard, but this from 1969. Joel Selvin sent it to us a couple of months ago. We just couldn't resist. Yeah, and yeah, the audio quality isn't brilliant, but just to hear someone like Richard talking at that time. It's, it's not to be missed. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a, there's a bit, there's a chunk I had to cut out, which is the stuff backstage, where it was mastered to digital so hot that there was, it was unrescuable. It was just a massive distortion. Because the band are in there, and they're just laughing, and they're sort of singing together and all kinds of stuff like that. And it is rather fabulous, but it was just, you know, and you can't understand a word anyone's saying. It's just the sound of a band in a dressing room at a whiskey. Just yes. all kind of like probably slapping palms and you know just and larking around and it's very very nice and funny but it's just it, it was it, it, sonically it was a mess it's a shame I'd have liked yeah. to have had some of that in there. So look, Mark, why don't we now go on to? 
talk about some of the pieces that have been added this week. I mean, I didn't. Maybe maybe we could start with the just with the Muscle Shoals piece. In fact, since it sure. it, it yeah. ties in with this little Richard. Absolutely, thing. this is a piece that I've found that you wrote, Candia, for Perfect Sound Forever which is a music website run by Jason Gross, I think. And this was in 2005, sort of RIP Muscle Shoals Sound, Sheffield, Alabama. I found it a really fascinating essay to read where you are talking about South by Southwest and you're talking about the Allman Brothers and quote-unquote Southern rock and the way that it's been treated and and the way that stardom factors into it. You have a, a Great paragraph. You're talking about your own role as music journalist at this point in the rock business. Yet as one ages and reckons with one's abject position in the rock biz hierarchy, when one attempts to measure whether her career follows the tenets of either Andrew Saris careerists or cultists, guilty, the errors of one's ways become clearer and the problem of serving as a tiny cog in the star maker machinery chafes. I wanted to bring that up because I think it is an interesting concept about you know the making of stars and when that doesn't happen i mean that's a kind of analysis you apply to arthur lee why does he not get the plaudits he should have got donny hathaway why is he not mentioned in the same breath as graham parsons or, or nick nick Drake? Or even graham parsons yeah, yeah i mean yeah. but so but what is it about stardom and that machinery and what role does one play in it i just thought it was a, a fascinating piece do you remember that piece candia no. <laughs> that was a hell well, of it's a worth a read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you'll have to reread it when it goes. Yes, I, I, I will. <laughs> so, I mean, what we're going to do is because we're doing the podcasts every fortnight, we're also going to look back at some of the pieces went in last week when we didn't have a podcast. And just brief mention of a couple of them. Philip Elwood, San Francisco Examiner in December 69, reviews Live Dead, Grateful Dead's Live Dead, which is a huge record for me. I mean, I'm just passionate about that. He says, the opening selection, 23 minutes of it, is titled Dark Star. After four playings, I still kept discovering new sounds, attractive matchings of guitars, beautifully produced and executed audio changes and care dynamics. And rhythmic change of pace, great solos. You get the idea? He liked this record a great deal. I mean, he is reasonably sceptical about singing, rightly so, because the singing on the album is ghastly. Though Pigpen sort of pulls it together for Turn On Your Love Light at the end, but huge record for me. I bought it pretty much when it came out, you know, still listen to it today. Still Um, tripping to it today. Still tripping for today. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, as we speak. As we speak, yeah. Um, you know, it's amazing I'm as coherent as I am, really, isn't it? A really interesting Nick Tosh's profile, Dolly Parton, from Village Voice from September 74. And he's a, fa- he's a huge fan of hers as a writer, as a recording artist. But he found finds her live, excruciating. But he uses some pretty grim language which would not get past the editors today. For example, there is, however, a darker, more dismal side to Dolly Parton. I went to her recent show at Felt Forum, expecting at least a taste of her proven abilities. Instead, I witnessed one of the shoddiest dumb cunt routines this side of evil. Well, you know, I mean, in a way, it's, it's quite instructive. My job proofreading these things is to see precisely kind of 
how unpolitically correct things were in those well, days. Like the machismo of those, those, yeah. those noise yeah. boys, those yeah. gonzo I, guys. I mean, he, he, you know, he's a fa- he's a fan of hers. You know, it has to be uh, her as an artist. Yeah, well, is he? I mean, <laughs> he says mm. until Dolly abandons the ersatz yokelisms, her life performance will remain a mere travesty of her worth. Not to mention bad. What she's capable of doing with words and sound is act enough. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very critical profile. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and lastly, from last week, Barry Kane, Record Mirror, interviewed Sylvester on the phone, unfortunately. Barry Kane is, again, it's a sort of similar sort of territory. He's clearly obs- slightly obsessed about the fact that Sylvester is so out and gay. And this is 1978, and, you know, it's probably not something he'd come across a great deal. And he says... Listen, honey, I don't think about my sexuality. It's no big deal in my life. I very rarely write love songs. And he says, if I died tonight, I'd say I've had a great life. I'm easy to get along with. I'm a happy person, happy with just living. Lastly, he says, maybe you ought to have a homosexual experience yourself. Then you wouldn't have to ask me what it's like. I love that. <laughs> That's a, a fantastic such a, quote. Such a, such a, a, such a yeah. great life. Candy, what do you what do you make? We love Sylvester at Roxback Pages. How, how do you view him? Yes, my father was a big Sylvester fan. Oh, really? Yes. He kind of collects his album covers, so I've been always cued into his genius. Fantastic, fantastic. No, we, we, as I said, you know, we we all don't. Jasper, you do yeah, too, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. That quote you posted on Facebook, I think, it's just it's so perfect. It's like, yeah, you know, stop asking about this stuff. It's none of your business. But you know, just, it's just great. <laughs> Talking about Southern rock, he did that great version of Southern Man. Oh, yes, of course, yes, he, of did. course yeah. he did. Yeah, one of the least likely things you would expect Sylvester to do, but it's yeah. really brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. You you interviewed him, didn't you, Barney? You, I you... did. I was lucky enough to visit him at his home in the Castro, in San Francisco, and I just think he was wonderful. He really was. He was delightful. And that record, "Do You Want a Funk," had just come out. Yeah, I remember talking to him about Patrick Cowley, and I think Patrick Cowley, his his famous white producer had just been diagnosed with i don't even know if if the t- if the word aids was was current at that point but wow. but he was one of the earliest high profile musicians to die of aids and he was already very sick with it and this was 1982 it, it was that was a very early piece we posted on the site and it was at that point i realized that our we at that time we had a company who were digitizing our stuff for us before we sort of started taking that in-house, when I realised they weren't getting the formatting right, because I realised that Sylvester talks in italics virtually the whole time, and yet the italics weren't there, so I went and revisited the actual printed piece, and it is, it's almost entirely in italics. Well, just because of the, was that how I transcribed his, yeah. the way he spoke? It's yeah. probably quite likely. Yeah, so that's when I spotted it. We, we got yeah. that Okay, this week, moving swiftly on. Very interesting. Nancy Lewis meets the Supremes backstage in New York. I think one of the sort of supper club shows they were doing in 1967. And Florence Ballard says, if we believed half the stories we hear, we'd each have been married about six times and have a couple of dozen kids as well. Diana Ross says, 
They think we should all be arguing, I guess, but we really disagree at all. It'd be miserable if we did. This piece was published on the 1st of July, 67, the very day that Berry Gordy sacked Florence Ballard from the band. Basically, oh, for, really? Yeah, because she, she, she they were doing a stint in Las Vegas and she went on stage drunk, basically. Yes. So so it's it's you've got this very sort of them spewing the company line to the, the to the journalist, but actually things are already in the process yeah, yeah, yeah. of falling, falling apart. That's very poignant. Ian MacDonald and Roy Carr discussed David Bowie's retirement in NME in 1973. That was when he had just done that show at Earl's Court, was it, Barney? The, no, Earl's... it was Hammersmith. Hammersmith, it? yeah, that's right. Hammersmith, where he said that Ziggy was dead and, yeah. and people thought he might never perform again. Absolutely. Roy Carr is a kind of Bowie sceptic. He just saw, thought this guy was doing a publicity manoeuvre and all that. Ian MacDonald is, is, is a true believer. And Ian McDonald says something really interesting and actually spot on. He says, I agree with you. He'll come back. And when he's good and ready is precisely it. When he comes back, he'll be unrecognisably different from the Bowie, Ziggy, Aladdin character that he was using this time, which is just spot Understatement. on. Understatement. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah completely. Uh, they're very much at your request. Sounds 1979. Sandy Robertson interviews Terry Melcher, who's over in London producing some act who disappeared without trace okay terry melcher is a pretty kind of odd figure um not <laughs> not terribly like what a fascinating figure i saw i mean i've made i pulled out the quote for the home page yeah which i couldn't resist you meet people and audition them it can be paul mccartney or charles manson <laughs> <laughs> well that's um, one way to put it not the audition paul mccartney but look i mean terry melcher interviews are few and far between yes. i'm not saying they're rare as hen's teeth but certainly in this, I mean, 1979, not many people were interviewing Terry Melcher. No, abs- and absolutely. And he wasn't doing, I mean, what was he doing in his career at that point? But such an interesting person in the story of Southern California. Ab- absolutely. I mean, the, the, the fact that he and Brian Wilson's relationship with Manson was all about the girls in Manson family and that, that they had this reputation as, what do they call them, the swordsmen or something like that. They had some ghastly, yeah. ghastly term. Dennis Wilson and Terry Melcher. So, you know, so but, and this yeah. comes through in this, as Sandy Robertson writes, to his eternal credit in the face of all that's hip, Melcher still likes his hometown of Los Angeles. Though his only comment on its chart-topping resident, Linda Ronstadt, is she was known as a great lay in LA for a long time. Oh my. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's that sort of stuff goes. Mind you, he's pretty clear about a certain ex-bird and so on. He says, I never liked Crosby too much. He was an asshole. Crosby has a real sense of his own greatness. Speaking of the birds, have you read Chris Hillman's memoir, no. Barn? Yes, I have. I actually I? interviewed him a couple of weekends ago at the Louth online in the Louder Than Words festival that our friend Jill Adam runs. Obviously, it was all online this year. And so I, I I read it for that. Have you read it, Candy? No, I've been waiting to see what you're going to say about it. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's fairly bland. I mean, not least because Chris is now born again Christian, has been for many years. Chris and his wife Connie, you know, they're very big on that. I actually asked him whether he had it because that was literally when I spoke to him. It was about two hours after Biden's Biden had been confirmed as as the winner. And I asked him what his views were of evangelical Christian support for Trump. And he really swerved it. He wouldn't he mm-hmm. wouldn't comment. 
which uh, really upset me, I have to say. I mean, I respect his right to do that, but it, it just sort of left me thinking, did this guy who played on Mr. Tambourine Man possibly conceivably vote for Trump? Yes, that's disturbing. I think we all were left, were left wondering. I mean, the book is, it's fairly bland. I mean, it's, it's, you'll learn some stuff along the way, but it's not, it's not a riveting read. Uh, last couple of things. 1987, Mark Rowland's interview with Tom Waits for Musician Magazine. Uh, it's, a, it's a big one. It's, you know, it's sort of 7,000 worder. He gives great interview, Tom Waits. He's always amusing. He's always kind of like says stuff which is pertinent and interesting. He says, I don't write the same way. I used to sit in the room with a piano, the Tin Pan Alley approach. I thought that's how songs were written. And then later on, he says, it's like giving a blowtorch to a monkey. That's what I'm trying to do. Always trying to break something. Which I think I think's terrific. He's also amusing sides. Like my dad wanted to have a chicken ranch when I was a kid. He's always been very close to chickens, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is a very very sort of Tom Waits. Thing. It's a very good read because I, I don't think I've ever read a boring interview with Tom Waits. He's never given a boring interview. I doubt it very much. Just it's, it's terrific stuff. Lastly, Stuart McConey reviewing George Michael's "Listen Without Prejudice" NME nineteen ninety. Now he we're says, getting to the good stuff. We're getting to the good stuff. This is. George has forgotten more about pop music than Thurston Moore will ever know. But something is nagging at George, the frivolities of his shuttlecocked past still haunting him, which is I think, ter- ter- terrific. Candy, Can I don't you know explain if you that reference? Yeah, there was a, Wham used to have this thing of putting a, a badminton shuttlecock down their shorts on stage and then batting them into the audience. That was a sort of part of their shtick at one point. I, I love that. I've forgotten more about pop music than Thurston Moore will ever know. Yeah, you posted that on the Facebook page. Someone said, why drag Thurston Yeah, I know. This? People have got no <laughs> sense of humour or anything, you know. I mean, <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's, that, that's my lot for the last you, two Mark. weeks. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I will mention a couple of things very, very briefly. One is uh, just actually a review of one of Peter Hook's books. I think it's sort of it's called like Inside Joy Division or Inside New Order. I can't remember which it is. But Andy Beckett, the great Guardian columnist who came on board not that long ago. I didn't even realise he'd written so much about music. He's a true fan. And I mention it because, A, it's a, a, a just an interesting perspective on Joy Division and New Order. But also it reminded me that Mark Cooper, our guest, our previous guest, Candy, had recommended listening to the new Transmissions podcast, which is all about Joy Division and New Order. So I did, and I've listened to the first two episodes, and it is really good, actually. Not least because you get to hear, the, the you know, there isn't an awful lot of, audio of Ian Curtis speaking, very, very rare. So it's interesting to hear him and interesting to hear the late Martin Hannett as well, the guy who had so much to do with the sound of Joy Division. Anyway, so there's that. And then I shall just mention uh, the the lovely, adorable Gary Piggold. He's been on RBP for years. Just a great piece he wrote last year about the shags. Their re- remarkable album, Philosophy of the World, was <laughs> was 50 years old last year. And Gary writes a very affectionate piece about this extraordinary <laughs> self-made record. You must know that album, Philosophy of the World, <laughs> Candia. Do you know the shags? A little bit. <laughs> you don't, you don't a, sound a little bit of just enough. <laughs> just enough not to need to know any more. 
I actually really liked it when I actually listened to it properly. It's very, very odd. It's 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 kind of like outsider art, isn't it? It's, it's, it is the outsider's outsider it, album, really. Yeah, isn't it, in a way? and in a way, it's utterly incompetent. But it's got a sort of slightly mad charm and and slight spookiness as well to it. Very weird and spooky. Just this little slightly sort of. Well, I'm not going to call them inbred because that's probably not fair. But they were this this family from a very remote part of New Hampshire, and they could barely play their instruments. But their dad bought them sort of a drum kit and a cheap guitar at Sears Roebuck, and and then financed these these this recording, you know. And it is quite bizarre, but really rather magical. Tracks like "My Pal Foot Foot," "Jump Out." Anyway, I mean, if you don't. Know it as intimately as obviously Mark and I do, Candy. I do recommend. <laughs> I recommend investing in it. <laughs> okay, it's not Graham Parsons. No, and it's not. It's not the Allman Brothers live at the Fillmore East. <laughs> but <laughs> my pal's name is Football. Football. He always likes to roam. My pal's name is Football. Football. I never find him home. Jasper, what have you got for us? <laughs> I've got a couple of things. I had one one thing which is from The Wire, and it is the aforementioned Jason Gross, and I sort of thought I'd have this great kind of dovetail into, into Candy's piece for Perfect oh. Sound Forever, but that's, oh, you know... Oh, so been... sorry. <laughs> I put the kibosh on that. You did. But no, this is a great short report about... Istanbul about Turkish music uh, for the an, an obvious segue from Muscle Shoal. Well, no, it's because it, <laughs> because it's by Jason Gross in the wire, and it's for the yeah. That was my segue. That was the that was the link. See, I, I couldn't find another link, so it had to be that one. But it's part of their Global Ear series where a writer reports on a scene somewhere, and this is an interesting one because Turkish music at the time this is two thousand and one. And it's recovering from being, you know, having the kibosh put on it by um, Ken and Evren, the military coup in 1980, when the Anadolu okay. rock like Erkin Kuray and, and that lot who were quite big within Turkey all kind of had to stop. And they it was following the role models of, of people like Jimi Hendrix of kind of creating something rock oriented but with Turkish instruments, traditional instruments. In any case, it's just a it's a report about how the scene has kind of developed out of that and a lot of it is now in Istanbul is is targeted at tourists. But it concludes, although Istanbul's boho fringe is taking a long time to make any impression on the local media, there can be few cities with such a wonderfully dour experimental spirit pulsing beneath their streets. And I think it's fascinating and also serves as a great sort of starting point to go looking at any of the bands he mentioned, some of which I've just been sort of idly listening to and I think are are pretty interesting, actually. So now the natural segue, of course, is to Janelle Monet, (laughs) live in Berlin. And that's that's the the other piece I picked to talk about. And it's fascinating it's Wyndham Wallace it's a sort of live review I love I love Wyndham Wallace's name he sounds like he's out of the 1930s he's become epicene poet from Cambridge like. definitely <laughs> definitely definitely but this he kind of goes into I mean first and foremost he waxes lyrical about how great Janelle Monet's music is which I think it absolutely is. I love Janelle Monet and mentions about how, you know, developing under the watchful eye of Big Boy. And it's, it's very funny, Wyndham, about Puff Daddy. Refers to him first as Mr. Diddy Daddy. 
and then as Puff the Magic Bandwagon Jumper, <laughs> which both of which are very, very amusing. But in any case, he then gets into this idea about the concept of, because this is about Arc Android, which was a sort of suite, Metropolis suites one, two, and three. And he gets into this, the concept not being any good and it, it obscuring the music. And it just, for me, it raised the question of like, what, who, who gets to make concept albums and what really defines a concept album? If, if the music's great, then, and, and you're ignoring the concept, what does that mean for the album as a, as a whole? I don't know. Okay. I wanted to raise that question. <laughs> but Sorry, it's too Jasper. late too late in the day apparently <laughs> too late in the day yeah <laughs> exhausted it's, it's it's nearly five o'clock here. i will read a funny quote from it in that case to be honest it doesn't really matter when the arc android hits its stride it wouldn't really matter if it was about alan titchmarsh's double life as a gardener and soft porn novelist the concept <laughs> is wholly overshadowed by the sheer weight of the music and performances and at her finest monet is worth all the hyperbole with which the arc android has been received is that genuine that there's a soft is it has a sideline as a soft porn novelist i don't know why would i know that <laughs> You didn't mean you haven't looked it I, up. I can guarantee <laughs> Candia doesn't have a clue who Alan Titchmarsh is. No, who she is does, Alan She's even Titchmarsh. more of an Anglophile than I think she is. He, he's no. a kind of d- d- daytime TV presenter slash garden person. I actually played on Daytime Live when he was presenting it oh. in, back in 1988. It was ghastly. Playing to an audience of busting grannies from the Midlands because it took place at Pebble Mill Studios in Birmingham. It was one of the most miserable experiences of my life. In any case, I think it's a joke. <laughs> I think it Mark. is a joke, yeah. It is you a sure? joke. Or you feature in one of his sidelines. This has really <laughs> gone off the rails. It's just gone so off the rails. Yeah. Normally we record our podcast in the morning when we're sort of relatively compost mentis. But today, because you're in New York, Candy, which leads me to ask, how's, how are things in New York? I mean, we need to finish up, but I just ask, ask how lockdown has been for you and what's keeping you busy and how, how things are looking for the immediate future. Well, things are quiet because I don't go out in the crowds. I mean, people are having illicit parties and things like that. Right in the various boroughs and they get busted and it's this whole huge deal on the news. Yeah, same here. But I stay in as my twin sister had a bout with COVID uh, earlier okay. and I don't want to catch it and just trying to make sure she stays well as well. Is she in New York also? Yes. Yeah. People, when the day when they announced about Biden and Kamala Harris, people rushed out to like Columbus Circle and Prospect Park and Grand Army Plaza. They were out at all these kind of main spots in the city celebrating. And that's the only time I felt kind of moved to go outside and proclaim my giddiness at Trump being defeated. Um, But I just stay in. I have a quiet existence now. Well, it's been lovely having you on our podcast. It that's really has. Sh- that, that's for sure. You know, I mean, think of this this Zoom thing as a window into the outside world. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's, it's yeah. big fun getting to see you guys. <laughs> yeah, it is really nice to see you. And it's been really interesting talking to you about a lot of shared passions and interest and are you writing anything at the moment not right now okay 
I don't mean right at this very second. That that, that would be an extraordinary achievement. <laughs> yeah, I've written a whole piece while talking to you guys. Well, I hope you... Let's just say, I really hope... That, I mean, you're a fabulous writer, you know, and uh, when, you were, when we were talking a little about Tosh's earlier, I was thinking about the writers that influenced you from Stanley Booth to, to Greg Tate to Lester Bangs. You you got Lester into that uh, anthology. That's didn't you? that's right. Obviously, Lester he was gone Bangs, by then. He was white, dead by then. White noise supremacist piece <laughs> was in there. Yeah. Is that what it's called? White noise yes. supremacy. That's very funny. Um, it is a great book, I have to say. So rip it up. Title, you know, borrowed from the great little Richard Penniman. It's been a great episode. Thanks for joining us, Candia. Hope yeah. to see. Uh-huh. Oh. Ah, oh, there it is. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, we will take a picture in just a moment. But uh, suffice to say, we, we're at the end of the episode. Thanks so much again. Thanks for having me. It's fun to hang with you guys. Lovely. Nice to meet you, Jasper. It's nice to meet you, too. <laughs> Hands across pleasure, the water. Pleasure getting to read Hugs. your writing up until, you know. Hugs across yeah, I, I the wish water. I could come over there and hang out with you guys for a pub crawl. Oh, that'd be lovely. <laughs> that would, that that would, the pubs are, are reopened. Yeah. Well, you could try it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you'll just have to, you know, when this is all over, you'll have to come and be on the podcast over. again, and then exactly, and then we will do a we'll, we'll do a pub crawl. Yeah. But in the meantime, we will be back in two weeks with another Guardian columnist john harris oh really yes and that will be our last episode i think of the year we'll see you then and candy i hope very much to see you either here or over there in the not too distant look after yourself stay safe well if you do another book on something to do with california our <laughs> we'll favorite meet there. we'll meet in Laurel canyon <laughs> yeah you me and henry dilf yeah bless him thanks again bye 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 there's a lot of record companies in america today that that would give a white fella that's never had a hit record in his life they would give him $150,000, someone they just did to Johnny Winters. Gave him a million and seven dollars. He had never made a record in his life to sign the contract. A rock and roll singer. And I can go to them today, and I've sold 32 million, and if I ask them for 100000 150000 they'd scream and try to find a way out to give you 50. I'm gonna rip it up. I'm gonna shake it up. That was Little Richard in conversation with Joel Selvin in 1969, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Candia Crazy Horse. Visit her website at candiacrazyhorse.com. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Oh, no!